Thank you for joining me for my first episode of season three. Today, I'm talking to educator, Dr. Angela Valenzuela, who is a professor at my alma mater, the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. In our conversation today, Dr. Valenzuela shares with us her work with Academia Huatli, a partnership model within the Austin Independent School District and the MIS Barrientos Mexican American Cultural Center that elevates education within the Latino community. Listen to learn how this program, entering its ninth year of operation, is developing fourth and fifth grade students whose parents are of immigrant and working class backgrounds. Dr. Valenzuela shares how this program is also a part of a larger Grow Your Own Educator movement that creates pathways into the teaching profession and helps retain bilingual dual language teachers, a policy issue that is so pressing today. Dr. Angela Valenzuela is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin in both the Cultural Studies and Education program within the Department of Curriculum and Instruction and the Educational Policy and Planning program within the Department of Education Leadership and Policy, where she also serves as the director of the Texas Center for Education Policy. Dr. Valenzuela has also founded and operates an education blog entitled Educational Equity, Politics and Policy in Texas. Enjoy our conversation and see show notes for more information about Dr. Valenzuela, Academia Guatli, and her blog. As always, make sure you subscribe to the Empowerment Zone podcast and give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Your support will ensure that we continue our journey in empowerment and impact. Hi, Dr. Angela Valenzuela. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here and to reconnect with you. Yes, I'm uh, very excited about having you on uh, the Empowerment Zone, being a Tejana native of, of my uh, state, Texas, and I also understand you're from San Angelo. I didn't know that until today. Uh, I, as you know, I'm from Brownwood, Texas, which is not too far from San Angelo. Uh, and so I'm delighted to have you on for several reasons. Uh, one, uh, because you are an educator and, and also an educator activist, uh, it's really great to have a uh, scholar activist on the show to really talk about your research and your work in the, commun in the community. Also, I'm eager to discuss with you uh, the school uh, that you uh, have founded in order to in, uh, in, uh, establish ethnic studies in, in the public school systems in Texas. So thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Thank you. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. And uh, yeah, Brownwood's just around the corner. <laughs> yeah, I have a picture of 
of uh, yeah, just how how connected we are in ways that I hadn't really considered <laughs> previously. Previously, that's 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 really cool. Yeah, so I'm from West Texas. Um, I grew up there, went to school there, and uh, it was such uh, an important part of my formation. And as a young person, uh, it was also experiencing the. Um, the Mexican-American civil rights movement and the, of course the you know the African-American civil rights movement and the women's movement the anti-war <laughs> movement it seems like as I was growing up at at an age that was so impressionable to me in middle school um, it stayed with me and really has shaped who I, I have become as a person and a, and a scholar. So what are some of those experiences, I'm very curious, that shaped you uh, as a young person growing up in San Angelo? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, my um, my grandfather was a minister, and um, he was involved in civil rights um, way back in the 50s, and he helped, for example, to desegregate the river in my hometown. Um, and also uh, public uh, public uh, establishments like restaurants and hotels. He was from Mexico, and so he had a really different frame of reference and just really just didn't understand West Texas and Jim Crow and just found it so objectionable. Uh, and then as a minister, he had that power, right, to, to be able to, to stand up and, uh, and resist the discrimination that was systemic and overt um, and toxic in 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 those days, and I, I feel like, um, I mean, he in in um, tandem with other members of the community, but especially the clergy, um, you know, he lived that and helped bring the signs down. You know, the you know no Mexicans uh, or dogs allowed signs, and also to integrate the you know the um, uh, public establishments. Um, which was important and amazing and influential, but also I think very scarring, all of that. And not just for him and my grandmother that had to live this, but my but my parents. And uh, I mean, they're fine, but it was one of those memories that was um, very, um, uh, you know, just very, very um, influential, even just on a day-to-day -day basis and in, um, understanding that civil rights is um, never fully accomplished, but it's it's like democracy. It's something that um, each generation has to rediscover for itself. And so that's been really, really defining in terms of uh, my own uh, formation and wanting to make sure that this these histories and these stories are, are not only ne never lost, but that the counter narratives of the real empowerment or the potential for empowerment that that uh, uh, is there within our communities is something that that we can all access with with greater consciousness, right? With the kind of consciousness that I would hope uh, schools would promote, but since they often don't do that, uh, I, I am particularly uh, drawn to efforts that uh, illuminate those histories, but also bring forward. Uh, empowering narratives of what our communities are and, and what they can do to overcome systemic racism and sexism and homophobia and um, yeah, classism and 
just all these things that are just so harmful to our communities. And that's a great segue. Uh, as an educator, uh, you really work as an activist as well, really supporting the community. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in the community and the school that you have formed uh, there in Austin? Yeah, I think when we first met, I was uh, in Houston and I was writing a book, Subtractive Schooling. And I just wanted to understand how it is that that we uh, in the Mexican-American working class get reproduced in ways that are harmful and, 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 and disempowered. Like what, what is that process? And so key to my analysis um, was <clears throat> this idea that, that um, the fullness of who we are as um, members of our communities with our cultures, languages, our community-based identities, uh, with our stories, our histories, it's not present. All, none of that is present in our K-12 schools. And we, you know, we consider that absence, which is a structured absence, as actually normal. And we don't even question it. Although, you know, clearly as a, you know, as as a scholar and a public intellectual, I do question that and and have uh, always aligned with um, movements within the academy and in our communities that have also questioned that. And um, you know, the '60s I think was a real opening for. Um, African-American studies, Mexican-American studies, Asian-American studies, and um, Native American studies, and Puerto Rican studies. And, and um, it, it remained dormant for a while. And so I felt like I was a bit just kind of <laughs> back in Houston, try, trying to, you know, get my, 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 my ground game uh, as, you know, I was like elaborating this critique and kind of trying to envision next steps going forward. Um, you know, hoping for a movement that I guess one lives long enough sometimes to see some things come to fruition. <laughs> and so that's been very, uh, you know, just very, very fulfilling to see that the, the younger generations and, and the current one as well, the, the, the people my age with children and grandchildren in the schools being deeply concerned about their children and grandchildren, grandchildren not being reflected in textbooks and curriculum and pedagogy much less in the teacher workforce mm -hmm. itself. Um, mm -hmm. And we can add to this, the lack of representation of, of uh, faculty of color in higher education as a, mm -hmm. as a, a continuing, a very serious problem that we must address from a policy issue, uh, from a policy perspective. And so what are some of those solutions that you being an educator and being in higher education? I'm just curious, uh, what are some of the suggestions, policy suggestions do you have in order to increase the number of uh, Mexican-American, Latino, Latina um, educators in, in not only the public school system, but also in higher education? So there's uh, all kinds of things that need to be happening right now. Uh, there are good proposals on the table. Uh, if we're just talking about, you know, diversifying the teacher workforce in K-12 education, we can grow our own educators. We can promote community community um, people who might be teacher aides uh, and provide funding for them to become our children's teachers. And what the research shows about those kinds of teachers is that they stay in education because they stay in their communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think also to promote teachers of color because, uh, and not not just like one, one, you know, but 
in, in cohorts so that there's that kind of camaraderie and solidarity, that sense of protection um, within schools. Uh, so that's not token, but it's really meaningful kinds mm -hmm. of inclusion. And, uh, uh, and these kinds of teachers get empowered. We need resources, we need debt forgiveness for teachers uh, who can commit to some number of being a teacher in schools, um, you know, with either debt forgiveness or um, like policies that actually fund uh, and you know, they pay for teachers tuition so that uh, pre-service teachers so that they can go back and, and um, uh, teach in our uh, children's schools and our community schools. Uh, what we can also do is diversify higher education um, because we know that, that a lot of people come through teacher preparation programs. And if our programs themselves are not sensitive to issues of diversity and the importance of it, and they're not critical uh, of, um, of um, education in a way that's constructive and helpful, that uh, brings in ways of knowing and ways of being that would actually be very, very helpful to education, then it's gonna be real difficult. If we don't, if we don't diversify higher education, it's gonna be very difficult to, to diversify uh, K-12 schooling. And, and I'm, not just, I'm not just talking about brown bodies, black and brown bodies, I'm talking about the actual curriculum in uh -huh. higher education. And I don't see that happening, not coming back to community without, you know, people like ourselves um, also being involved in community. Mm -hmm. If you're involved in community, you know what uh, communities seek, what they want, what they desire, and uh, and and there'll be differences that we have to be attentive to. So, I mean, teaching a child of color is, it, it can sound more simple than it is, but you're talking about all kinds of differences by by race, uh, by class, by identity. Um, you, know, you know, some of some children are newly arrived, right? And they're they would be different. You would you would teach differently. Uh, or some are indigenous or Afro-indigenous or Afro-Latino. And, and so are we being inclusive uh, of these identities in our curriculum and our pedagogy? These are questions that, that we must always ask as, uh, as teachers in, in uh, not just K-12 spaces, but at the college level always, so that we can always improve our, our instruction and make schools not just meaningful and relevant, but truly exciting. For, for young people coming through. You're so right, curriculum is important. It's not just about having uh, African-American, Latino, Latina, indigenous, Asian-American teachers. It's also about what you teach, what is a part of your core curriculum. And I know uh, you have been involved in the movement to uh, put ethnic studies within uh, public school systems. I'm curious, uh, what are some of the arguments you and other scholars and activists have made to ensure, to educate, you know, the, the uh, State Department of Education and others who, and the public, who may have been against this infusion of ethnic studies into the curriculum, what arguments have you made to them to get them to understand the importance of ethnic studies? Yeah, um, so um, I think what works for policymakers is to show them the evidence that it contributes to the very educational outcomes mm. about which they care, right? And we're talking about 
higher academic achievement, about um, it, it uh, is, is an antidote to an absenteeism in K-12 schools. It uh, promotes um, college access and actually going into college. And, and I, I, you know, the reason for all of that is because the ethics studies movement, it, it is primarily at the college level. So when you provide a college level curriculum to let's say high school youth, they can, many of them for the first time in their lives see that they are college material, even though all the signals that they're getting otherwise is that they're not um, because they don't have, you know, a, a, in their own backgrounds and histories, um, you know, that experience of their parents, for example, going to college. And so when they're constructed as uh, unfortunately from a deficit perspective uh, or as, as less than, then the, the risk is that youth can internalize those messages and they have to really like, like you know, fight against them. And it's hard without, without uh, the fortitude, the emotional, psychological, and particularly the intellectual fortitude that comes from a curriculum that um, you know, provides them with the knowledge and the skills that they need to, to navigate uh, the, the very educational spaces that they're in, in K-12 schools, but also at, at the college level. So once they, once you make these arguments, have you found that um, the Department of Education had, in Texas and other people uh, who may have formerly been a opposed or ignorant to the value of ethnic studies have do you feel like you've been able to bring them to your side or do you feel like you get a lot of pushback or a combination of the two um yeah you know i think we've, we've uh the, the proof is in the pudding we were able to pass in 2016 uh, elective courses in ethnic studies and by that i mean african-american native american asian american and mexican-american studies it was not easy it was uh, a battle that began in 2013, and it was on the heels of the dismantling of Mexican-American studies in the Tucson Unified School District. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us who um, saw what was happening in Arizona, this was before Trump got elected, we knew it was coming our way. And so we decided that the best, uh, you know, the best um, defense is a good offense. And so that's what we started. And by we, I'm referring to um, the National Association for Chicana and Chicano Studies, Tejas Poco, which is um, an organization that's statewide and that uh, convenes regularly to have um, uh, summits and conferences and also strategy meetings to, uh, to get initiatives like this passed. Last session, and, and then in an earlier session, I think in 2015, we had actual legislation that would um, have made ethnic studies law in the state of Texas. And it, it would have enabled pathways into ethnic studies that lead to high school graduation uh, with A and B parts to it at the high school level. Uh, that was Christina Morales from um, Houston who carried the legislation, House Bill 1504, she will carry that forward again in the next legislative session that will begin in January uh, 2023, um, the one that's coming. 
in January. So it'd be great for people to stay tuned to that. I know there in Houston, Tony Vias is a big advocate, works closely with her on this. Uh, we all work together. He's part of our Knox Tejas focal community. And we also were able to pass at the local level, we being um, those of us associated with our uh, Saturday school, Academia Cuautli, uh, that means Eagle Academy in Nahuatl, in Nahuatl. And uh, we were able to pass as a community-based organization, ethnic studies in AISD, so that now it's taught at the high school level um, in, uh, I understand every high school within the district. And so, so at, there's there's a lot of opportunity at the at the local district level. You do need your champions uh, in the school district and on the school board. I would hope that we could rely on our um, Mexican American and African American school board administrators organizations to advance the cause. Uh, I do I do see this happening with within Mazba. More needs to be done um, because it's not getting taught throughout the state uh, when it could be. It could get taught. I know that there's this also conservative reactionary movement uh, against the teaching of critical race theory. Um, and it, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, but uh, we certainly as Mexican-American studies or African-American studies uh, that are now TEKS aligned, we haven't been officially shut down. Um, that would be something to you know be vigilant about. Uh, I don't see that happening, though. In fact, what we're uh, witnessing is the development right now of TEKS standards. Those are the educational standards in both Native American studies and Asian American studies. And there's a lot of excitement around that. So, um, you know, I think uh, uh, we're more ahead than, than we are behind. And even though we hear all the bad news, I think Texas and the world needs to also hear the good news that we, we really are making progress. And I'm so excited about that. That's a good praise report uh, to hear <laughs> that that you are receiving uh, uh, support in Texas. So, you know, you mentioned the school, Quatley uh, School, Quatley mm -hmm. uh, School um, in in Austin. Can you tell us more about it? In fact, give us all the juicy details on how <laughs> it got started. Uh, what you actually do, how you're supporting the uh, public school system, and why that school is so important to Austin. Yeah, I think to talk about Quatli and its origins, I'd have to go back to the National Latino Education Research and Policy Project, NELRAP, and I'm the executive director of that. And we had gotten, we're, we're a group of uh, faculty, mostly in uh, teacher preparation in colleges of education who are Latinx nationwide. And we're, we're you know, Puerto Rican, we're um, um, Mexican-American primarily. Um, and we um, uh, got, uh, uh, funding, foundation funding to to stimulate projects throughout the country. And so those projects uh, exist. We're one of those. So we have 10 member institutions. And the goal of um, NELRAP was to create pathways into the teaching profession for teachers of color. So grow your own pathways is definitely one policy uh, arena to support. Um, and, and so that's like, you know, the granular work of working with community, perhaps with community-based organizations to bring uh, either like uh, kids in high schools or maybe who are in future Teacher of America programs to uh, come in to enroll in, in college and to receive the mentoring that they need 
and, until they get certified with the idea that they go back into their communities to teach. So uh, mostly that's envisioned as pathways from either like higher, uh, from high school into the university or from uh, the paraprofessional ranks, like I mentioned earlier, the teacher aid ranks into um, the university. But um, Gwaltly took on a different approach. Uh, and and I, I learned about uh, how to do this from that work and how to establish partnerships, uh, memorandum of understanding with participating entities. Uh, and it's very situated in um, like the context, the local context, what exactly those partnerships are. Uh, so for example, in, in uh, Wisconsin, you have the, um, you know, like, what comes out of this work is um, Milwaukee uh, MPS College. And so that's like its own institute that is certifying future bilingual education teachers in Milwaukee so that uh, you can bring uh, uh, MPS um, into the actual uh, community spaces, drawing from community-based uh, paraprofessionals and educators. Um, in our context, we um, didn't know quite how it would work <laughs> starting at the elementary school. Um, of course, this grand vision always was that we would promote, you know, more, more teachers in the teaching profession. But since it's at the elementary level and a lot happens along the way for children, uh, it's not an automatic connect, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to just pan out in that way. But what has panned out um, just so gloriously is, um, is that... Uh, the young people that have come through that have been volunteers or coordinators at Academia Quatli, they have gone on to uh, enroll in the doctoral program at UT, mm -hmm. either in curriculum instruction or education policy and planning, mm -hmm. which is my my uh, main um, appointment. I also have a leg in curriculum instruction, but my main appointment is in policy and planning with um, with, uh, I, I think it's maybe two that have gone on to be professors uh, in higher ed institutions and uh, several on the way. Wow, that, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. And we also have a number that have come through the master's program um, that, that um, you know, they're, they're uh, still in public schools, but they have master's degrees. And uh, so we're able to, to, to promote, you know, internally within the community so that, uh, we can increase the, you know, the, um, you know, the number, frankly, of PhDs and master's students mm -hmm. uh, in higher ed who are uh, very much committed, deeply committed to expanding the community cultural wealth of our communities mm -hmm. so that we can uh, inspire um, new generations of young people to come. We serve fourth and fifth graders uh, from a number of schools. In, in the span of nine years, we're entering our ninth year. We um, are now going to this year expand into five after-school programs that will offer our uh, curriculum. Our curriculum is is anchored in civil rights, in anti-racism, and it's uh, indigenous. Um, we have uh, Danza Mexica. Um, we have Aztec dance, which doesn't mean dance, but ceremony. Uh, we're we're anti-colonial, uh, very focused on uh, uh, identity and not just like what we understand maybe casually uh, popularly as, as being Latina, Latino or Mexican-American, but how we're also Afro-Indigenous and we're Afro-Latino and we uh, we need to cultivate this kind of uh, 
you know, enhanced, broadened understanding of who we are. We're, we're, we're very mixed <laughs> as, as we all, we're all mixed as peoples and we need to appreciate and honor that complexity. So that's evolved in time uh, and with the times. And uh, I feel very excited about our, our curriculum and, and just how much the teachers are uh, taking it up and teaching um, in their own uh classrooms actually not just in, not just in what we're pro projecting for the fall in terms of the after school programs but they're actually taking it up we've been able to prepare uh, uh around 250 teachers uh mm -hmm. locally in the curriculum um and uh, mostly in the bilingual dual language program and we're able to impact um you know like practice by uh through the partnership with the school district making it available, it's in English and Spanish, to every single teacher that wants to offer it district-wide. Mm. And so we're a go-to place for, you know, this curriculum that's, you know, very organic. It's very situated in, in um, you know, our community. It's a working class. It's very vulnerable. It's largely immigrant, Spanish-speaking. And that's like a lot of our kids. Um, that's a big demographic that's mostly... Um, that's mostly vulnerable and the target of ice raids and it's the target of gentrification that we have to hold on to that we have to be responsive to um, and be sensitive to because schools make assumptions about parents that mm -hmm. actually don't always hold true so true yeah yeah they, they don't always hold true and if you're not on the ground like working in this granular way with parents and you know just being in in conversation with them, uh, you won't know. You won't know exactly what their needs are. So there's a lot more pieces to this. We, another is, um, uh, we, we call it the, the collaborative. And so that involves a budding, uh, a budding partnership with uh, people at the University of Oaxaca and you know, Benito Juarez, Oaxaca. And, um, and so that is to deepen our own understanding of indigeneity. Um, and then lastly, we have, uh, uh, we just finished our Aztec Kids Code Summer Camp. And so we had um, over 30 kids, I believe. And this, the students were um, doing uh, coding and doing games and then um, monetizing their games in the morning. And then in the afternoon, they were doing ceremony, danza mexica. Mm. And so it, it really just, you know, resonates. What can I say? It, resign it resonates. Um, uh, at first, we were concerned whether people would like it, whether they would like us. And so, you know, what what we we frame this not as like bilingual education. It's not. Um, I mean, we don't teach Spanish. We teach in the language. Um, um, all, and our children are within the bilingual programs uh, in, I, in AISD, bilingual dual language programs. But really, it's a cultural revitalization initiative. We need to revitalize our, our languages and our cultures and be asset based and really like turn the narrative around like I was sharing earlier to 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 view our community from an asset based perspective with all this incredible community cultural wealth that absolutely needs to be tapped into in order for our schools to be exciting places for our, our children and youth. Well, congratulations on your work in education and uh, your work with Quatley. Uh, that is just really uh, good to see that you're having that kind of impact in the community, as well as uh, seeing how you affirm 
uh, uh, young people, uh, a lot of young people, especially those who don't have access to cultural and affirming um, aspects of identity have a challenge um, with confidence and self-assurance and, and wanting to really fulfill their highest potential. So if you, what would you say is your uh, biggest achievement from uh, the school? I know you've had so many, so if you could say what is one thing you're happy about in terms of the results and accomplishments, what would you say? I think the biggest achievement is um, is to create a space that inspires, mm -hmm. that motivates, that nurtures, because that is so lacking. And it, it came into focus in particular for us during the pandemic, when things started to shut down and... Um, you know, and we continued our work. And I think what crystallized for all of us was just how much we all needed each other. I mean, as faculty, as as volunteers from the community, elders, as as um, undergraduate and graduate student um, volunteers, the you know our coordinators, project manager, um, we were able to because of the you know, the um, trusting relationships that we've been able to to cultivate over all of these years, I felt that it helped us to um, like, like almost even accelerate, like to accelerate um, the, the, the uh, response to the needs of our community in their time of need. The teachers in particular who are affiliated with us told us that they would have left public education had it not been for us. And um, beneath that, we had teachers that, um, uh, you know, just couldn't teach also at night and helping, even if they did for, you know, like many, many days at a time, uh, very painstakingly to get kids online on Chromebooks. Um, you have a community that didn't, you know, and doesn't, still does not because of the digital inequities that exist. Mm -hmm have computers or have an, a background with computers and know what even a page was or mm -hmm. a tab, a space bar. I mean, all of that was like a foreign language. And so we were able to bring, again, because of having been in the schools, having evolved this uh, relational ecology, as we call it, you know, it's not, it's like, there's like a lot of us involved. It's a relational and the trust that comes with that we were able to be responsive, um, you know, pretty much immediately uh, as things like begin began to tumble down um, in those uh, first weeks and months of the pandemic. It was hard, and we got a window into the difficulties, in particular, again for our bilingual dual language teachers. Um, uh, and um, I mean, with all frankness, the school district we had asked them for for digital equity kinds of resources. They didn't have it. They didn't have a person, they didn't have it. And so then we had to go and get uh, resources and people to work one-on-one -on -one with the parents to, to make them as proficient as possible, understanding mm -hmm. that, that, you know, the main idea was to um, have them access the internet. And it wasn't even just for, you know, curriculum, but it was for uh, COVID information mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. responses. And then the city of Austin didn't do this um, in Spanish. And we were able to 
you know, like also, um, you know, use this information to get them to provide more resources in Spanish. And it was never what it needed to be, but at least we were a vehicle for um, all the way through for helping young young people get the instruction they needed, their parents be connected, uh, and actually provide resources, real resources to keep them from getting evicted. Um, and I think in one fundraiser, we raised um, well over 50,000, probably closer to $60,000 that that was, you know, like, like cash money that went straight to them to avoid evictions. We didn't lose a parent uh, mm -hmm. during the pandemic. We did not lose a single parent. We, we, we uh, had 40 families that we were responsible, that we felt responsible to and for, that we got very close to, and that we still very, you know, very much feel, you know, feel close to. Um, I think they're all kind of moving. We've been with them for two years. We held on to them because of the pandemic, because we got close and we were able to do that. We have that flexibility as a community-based organization. And um, I, I just think we have so much to be not only, you know, proud of, but just so, you know, just so thankful for because of a, a community that uh, demonstrated that really deep, authentic love and caring. So Dr. Angela Valenzuela, um, I know you're a big advocate for higher education. And uh, I would like to know uh, what your strategy for success would be if you were advising students who are in college. But first, could you please give us the, the name of the college or colleges that you have attended, your major or majors and your degrees, and then what strategy would you provide students to ensure that they're successful in college? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I got a bachelor's degree in uh, English and a Spanish minor in my hometown of Angelo State University. From there, I went to the University of Texas and I got a degree in sociolinguistics. I was interested in language and power and, and society. And it was a master's. From there, I got a master's degree in sociology at the University of California, Riverside. And then from there, I got a master's in sociology at uh, Stanford University in, um, and I followed up with a PhD there at uh, Stanford uh, with a PhD in sociology. And um, I, I think the, the best piece of advice that I can give is you know, for you to find those, those human resources, those mentors that, um, uh, that can help you with your, your questions um, and that you can get close to with whom you might align in terms of your interests. Because at the end of the day, it's people that are going to be the gatekeepers to your uh, profession and and also just the uh, providers of, uh, of real support. Um, uh, you might feel that you shouldn't bother us professors, but hey, that's what we're here for. Uh, bother us. <laughs> that's why. That's why they pay us, and that's why you know we um, are in the profession to begin with. At least I would hope that most of us would be in in that you know would share that sentiment, because um, you know we uh, we care we care for young people, and uh, and I know that when uh, people around me have succeeded, uh, I I. I enjoy that. I celebrate that. It's I love being part of 
of others' uh, successes and others' stories. But the key is to find those individuals in in your network. And I mean, sometimes it's like an, an email out of the blue. I would do my research beforehand and maybe read a little bit about them. Um, most of us are, um, we have identities on on the web and you can learn about us and kind of make make a, make your connection and your outreach of, to them meaningful and substantive and that that will impress someone like like me and um, make me want to just open the world to you uh, in, in as much as I can. Great advice. Identify the human resources you need to support your uh, growth and your work and one of those relationships is with uh, your professors who would be glad to support you. Uh, and don't feel any kind of uh, pause about contacting people you don't know. <laughs> because sometimes they will, many times actually, they will support uh, your inquiries. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Valenzuela. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest, 